Everybody? Hey, we are in a series in the book of Ephesians, and uh, we're going to continue on that in chapter 2 today. Change uh, actually is a pretty good thing. Some of you would agree with that. Most of us resist change, though, if we're honest. We do. But sometimes the smartest thing you can do in your life is just change your mind. It reminds me of the church secretary that changed her mind one Monday morning when a tall Texan came in wearing a 10-gallon cowboy hat, and he kind of saddled up next to the counter, and he said, I'm here to see the head hog. She looked at him, and she said, the head what, sir? And he said, you know, the holy hog, the one who blabs on every Sunday. I'm here to talk to him. And she was like aghast, and she said, I... I, I we don't talk that way. I mean, she was like this reprimanding school teacher and just kind of put him in his place and said, sir, we don't use terms of disrespect like that. We might call him the reverend or pastor, but nothing less than that. Well, he said, I, I never meant no disrespect, ma'am. I just sold a bunch of my cattle and I thought I'd make a donation of a million dollars. And so with this new sparkle in her voice, she said, hold on, I'll get the big pig. <laughs> See, sometimes it pays to change your mind. There might be something better for you. Today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, and there's something better there. It's a contrast of an old life and a new life. Ephesians chapter 2 starts with this contrast. And I love it because what it tells me is that your past does not have to become your future. You don't have to settle for being in a pattern of abusive relationships. You don't have to settle for living in an addiction. You don't have to settle with being controlled by your own selfish passions. You don't have to settle for a victim's mentality that blames everybody else in life. Where you've been does not need to be where you're going. We can get out of those ruts. We can have a new trajectory for our life when God breaks in because of him. But it requires a change of thinking. It requires a change of direction. It may mean owning up to some things that we like to downplay. And here's one of them. It's found in the very first chapter I mean the very first verse of the second chapter, and it says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You see, before Christ came into your life, you were dead. dead not, I'm not talking about physically. You probably were a stud. You were maybe in the best place you've ever been physically, but in your spirit, we're dead. There's no relationship with God. We're not spiritually alive. Our soul has shriveled. Our transgressions and our sins cut us off from a relationship with God. Transgressions or trespasses in the Greek language, which the majority of the New Testament was written in the Greek language, that word means wrong steps going where you shouldn't go, doing what you shouldn't do. My family used to live in Colbert, and we lived right off of Colbert Road, and we used to take walks in the woods. 
They have a beautiful uh, woods out across from our house, and we'd walk out to the train track that was out there, and we'd follow the tracks down towards the Highway 2, and we'd then cut back to Colbert Road, and we'd wait for all the traffic to, to uh, slow down enough where we could run across and go to the little Colbert store that was there. And so Tisa and I one day thought, let's go to the Colbert store. We, we go into the woods. We follow the train tracks down. And when it got time to go, cut back to Colbert Road and wait for the traffic to stop, I, I decided, no, let's take a shortcut I know of. And so it was the little bridge that went across the highway, on top of the highway, over the highway, and it was a shortcut. And I said, let's, let's just take this. And so we started to walk across the little bridge that goes over Highway 2, and we passed the little sign that said, no trespassing. And I just thought, you know, quicker way, don't have to wait for traffic. Well, we get up onto the middle of the bridge, looking down about 30 feet, Cars are whipping by, and all of a sudden, I think I heard a train. So I looked at Tisa, and I said, run, and I just took off running. <laughs> we got to the other side, and she looked back and saw a sign on the other side that said, no trespassing, and she gave me that look, and then I realized that's why the sign was there. <laughs> you know, a little longer, and it would have been cream of pastoral soup, but we made it. Transgression and trespassing is going where God says not to go and doing what God says not to do. It's basically ignoring God, thinking, you know, I'm the exception. Don't we all think that? We're the exception. Whatever I do, bad stuff's not going to happen to me, you know? I can bend the rules. I can change things. I can take shortcuts in life, and it's going to work out for me. It may not for other people, but it will for me. Somehow, we take these idiot pills, and we actually believe that stuff. Scripture informs us that the wages of sin is death. Transgressions are those willful things we do in violation of God's law. I know it's wrong to lie, but hey, it's quicker if I do to get me where I need to go. I knew it's better not to steal, but hey, I needed it. People know that premarital sex is wrong, but hey, it's a long way to wait for marriage, you know? It's that instant gratification where we go, you know, those boundaries, those markers, those signs that say no trespassing, they're for everyone else. They're just not for me. So we go there. It's willful. It's out of convenience. We look for the shortcuts, and we transgress. It also says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The New Testament, uh, or Greek word for sin, is hamartia, and the word means to miss the mark. Our English word sin comes from the root to miss. And in fact, it comes from an old game that the Brits would play in, uh, with archery. And uh, you might have 10 guys lining up. They all have a quiver. They all have five arrows. On a pole, they would put a large hoop, and each one of the guys would then aim for the hoop and shoot their arrow through the hoop. And whoever made it through, the most times won. Whenever you would miss the hoop, it, you sinned. And so whoever was the biggest sinner would buy drinks for everybody. <laughs> you know what that tells me is that you can try really hard and still sin. 
You can try not to sin and sin. You can try to always hit the mark and not hit the mark. That's why the scripture teaches us that all have sinned and come short or missed the mark of the glory of God, the perfection of God. We've all done that. We've all come short, no matter how good you feel you are. Some of you feel like I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I've never done drugs. I've never gotten drunk. I've, to the best of my knowledge, I've never stolen. I've never done anything wrong. I've tried to be a really good person my entire life. And, and, and the reason you probably feel really good about yourself is because you're measuring yourself against everybody else. And so you come up feeling a little bit better. The truth is, though, that other people are not our measuring stick. It's God's perfection. It's God's holiness. It's the very character of God. And when we measure against that, none of us are without sin. We've all blown it, and we all have gone our own way. It means owning our issues, doesn't it? It's not fun to do. Looking at that, admitting that, realizing that. There's something within us, our pride rises up and, and, and doesn't like that. Verse 2 says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a mouthful right there. It's a pretty interesting passage because what it reveals to us is that we live in a spiritual world. We live in a world in which there is a kingdom of darkness. There is a prince of the power of the air. There are demonic forces that are real. And of course, the spirit of God and what he's doing and the kingdom of God is real. And these th two things are at enmity with each other. And so the scripture teaches us that when we ignore God, we go our own way that we trespass and we follow the ways of this world, that we're unintentionally, by default, following a demonically inspired values system, a cultural current that's going a direction that is not God's direction. I'm not talking about you're possessed with demons and, you know, like Hollywood would portray. I'm saying that there's drivers going on culturally that are being inspired by Satan himself. And we follow the course of the world. What is that? Let me give you a couple examples. That, that value of relativity. You know, the world sees everything as relative. I've got my truth. You have your truth. I'm glad you're living your truth, dude. And I'm living my truth. And then there's God's truth. And it's just all the same. And it's all equal. Let's just love one another. Sounds so good, doesn't it? Like you could sell a book on that. The problem is that there's a lie in the midst of it because there are absolute truths. Compromise is another one of them. You know, we, we have integrity. Even the world would acknowledge that. But you, you bend and you flex and you compromise whenever you need to in order to get you to your goal. So if it means I've got to lose a bunch of money in order to keep integrity, probably won't do it. If it provides instant gratification, then that's the way I'm going to go. I mean, I don't want to live by some antiquated law that God put out there. That's crazy. 
Your happiness is the most important thing on the planet, isn't it? I mean, your happiness. God wants you to be happy. And so we believe that lie. We take it in. See, that's being influenced by the prince of the power of the air. Materialism. It's that, that thing that says, I need more. Whatever I have, whatever I had yesterday, I need more today. I don't have enough. I got to keep getting more. I can't really give generously. I can't be a part of any of that because that will deplete my supplies. I, the status of my home, my job, my car, what I wear, all of it plays into my identity. It speaks to who I am and it tells other people who I am. See, that's following the ways of the world, demonically inspired. Now, I know some of these things sound so minimal. Wow, really? I mean, in the grand scheme of things? But it's when you get underneath those things, and those things play themselves out long enough in a culture. Look at our culture. I mean, we have deep fractures. They're hurting us so much. I mean, young people, teen suicide continues to go up because of hopelessness, of serving that type of demonically inspired system. Skyrocketing porn addiction leads people to not know how to enter into genuine intimacy in a relationship. And so we have marriages, thousands upon thousands of marriages struggling, shallow, living these meager lives, barely holding it together. When the culture runs on every man for his own happiness, you know what happens when you boil it all down, it marginalizes people who maybe aren't quite as strong. It marginalizes them, and it promotes further injustice. And if you still struggle to believe that a demonic world exists, just look at the growing rate of terrorism around the world and tell me that is not demonically inspired. Satan is working within every culture to blind us, to addict us, and to pit us against each other putting up in front of us what appears to be wisdom, but when you really pick it apart and boil it down, what you find out is that it doesn't deliver what it promises because Satan knows his days are numbered. Christ is returning to rule and reign. And before anything can truly change at a root level, we have to acknowledge these brutal facts. Verse 3 says, We all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No, we are not the exception. Tell yourself that. I am not the exception. All of us have gone our own way and done our own thing. We all deserve judgment. And by nature, I'm a child of wrath. That doesn't sound too good. But the next verse changes the story. But God. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, God to the rescue, God's love and his mercy intervened in my life, in your life. Out of God's great love for us, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. What good news. Becoming a Christian is the act of God intervening, God loving you, God forgiving you, God adopting you, God calling you to something infinitely better. God chose you long before you chose him. He took the initiative. It was his idea all along. There's a true story about a woman in Korea right after the Korean War took place. This woman had gotten pregnant by an American soldier, and the soldier went back to the United States, and she never saw him again. Well, well, she gave birth to this little girl, but this little girl looked a little bit different than all the other Korean girls. Her hair was light-colored and curly, and she stood out. Well, in that particular culture, at that particular time, that meant that the mother would be severely rejected in, in society. In fact, some mothers in Korea who gave birth to children from American fathers ended up actually killing their babies because they couldn't stand the humiliation and the rejection, the heartache that they knew would be theirs throughout their entire life. This woman kept her baby, and she tried the very best that she could for seven years. But the rejection and the humiliation and the harassment became too much for her to handle. So she did something that very few of us in this room could ever imagine doing. She abandoned her little seven-year-old girl to the streets. That little girl wasn't alone because there were packs of little children living on the streets. They would live under bridges or in old abandoned buildings. They would live on the outskirts of town in caves. And they would scrap for food and get food off of the street or they would eat bugs, locusts roots, whatever they could find. This little girl was ruthlessly taunted by everybody she would encounter. They would call her the ugliest word in the Korean language, tuki. And that word means alien devil. After a while, this little girl began to draw conclusions about herself. This is what she would say years later. When you hear what you are as a little child, day after day after day, you you begin to believe it. And I believe that anybody could say anything or do anything against me physically because I wasn't a person. I was inhuman. I was dirty. I was unclean. I had no name. I had no identity. I had no family. I had no future. And I hated myself. For two years, she lived on the streets. Finally, there was this new orphanage that had opened in town. It it had very little money. It was very primitive. But at least it was a place where she could go and not get assaulted, not be attacked, not be harassed. So they took her into this orphanage. Pretty soon word came that a couple from America was going to come to this orphanage and adopt one of the little baby boys. The word went out among all the orphans in the orphanage, and this was the best news of all because somebody, somebody was going to escape the orphanage. Some little boy among them was going to have a fresh start a new chance, a future. So this little girl, who is now nine years old, was the oldest child in the orphanage. She began to bathe all the little boys and get them ready, wondering who would it be that this American couple would choose to adopt and bring back to America. The next week, this American man and his wife, they came. And this is what the girl recalled. It was like Goliath had come back to life. 
I saw the man with huge hands, and he lifted up each baby, and he looked at them. And I saw tears rolling down his cheeks, and I knew that he loved them. And I knew that if he could, he would take the whole lot. And then out of the corner of his eye, he, he noticed me. I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body, lice in my hair, boils all over me. I was full of scars. It wasn't a pretty sight. But the man came over to me, rattled off something in English, and I looked at him. Then he took his huge hand and he laid it on my face. What was he saying? He was saying, this is the child for me. Isn't that just like Christ? Jesus peers beneath the ugliness of our spirit and beneath the scars of our sins. And he's the one who looks to the very core of who we are, past all of the exterior. And he says, I see something. You're made in the image of Almighty God. And he wants to just gently take your face and cup it in his hands and look you in the eye and say, I choose you. We have the hardest time believing that. But from the very foundations of the world, God knew you. He made you. and He loved you. And he wants you in a relationship with him. And if you're like me, you come to church and you look around at people, church people, they look like they have it all together, sort of arrived in their spiritual journey. And you wonder maybe, gosh, if they knew me, if they really knew my struggles, my secrets, my fantasies, my sins, my past, they would probably reject me just like that society rejected that little girl. But the amazing thing about Jesus Christ is that he knows all of that stuff. He sees it all. He's aware of it all. He knows every secret you have, every sin you've ever committed. And he still wants you. He still wants you. He says, you're the child. You're the one I want. You're my son. You're my daughter. Jesus doesn't look through the lens you look at yourself, and he doesn't look at the lens other people look at you and are posturing to get others to look up to us and respect us. He just, he just looks at you and he knows you. He looks at you through heaven's eyes. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 9, God said, I have chosen you and will not throw you away. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. That's how God sees us. That's how God sees you, through heaven's eyes. There's no hopeless cause. There's nobody who's sinned too much. He says, you belong to me, and I adopt you. Then this incredible thing happened with this little nine-year-old Korean girl. An amazing thing happened at this moment. As the man was reaching out to her, she said, the hand on my face, it was warm. It felt so good. I, I, inside, I was saying, keep that up. Don't let your hand go. But nobody had ever shown me that kind of love before. I didn't know how to respond to genuine affection. She said, I yanked 
his hand off of my face and I looked at him and I spit on him and I ran the other way. Can you imagine that? Here's this little girl's opportunity. Here's this once in a lifetime time of, of change to head into a new future. Hope it represents. And she spits at him and runs away. How could she have done that? But you know, I've done that. Maybe you've done that. I think we've all done that to God in one way or another. You have that time when God is drawing you. God is speaking to you. God is loving you. God is convicting you. And you know he's at work. And, but something gets in the way. Your pride or your ego or your fear or your self-rejection or your cynicism towards Christianity or whatever it is gets in the way. And you go, no thanks. And we spit in his face. The next day, this American couple comes back to the orphanage, and because they understood what was behind this little girl's hurt, they understood the trauma she had gone through and all the things that she had suffered. They understood that in spite of her initial rejection of them, they looked at all the children in the orphanage again, and they came back to this little girl who spit in their eye, and they said, we still want this little girl. And they adopted her. And they cleaned her up and got her the needed medical attention. They raised that child like she was their own. And today, she's married. She's a follower of Jesus. She lives right here in the United States. The thing about Jesus is you may have turned your back on him, but he will never turn his back on you. You may have spit in his eye, maybe at times in your life like I have, but he's still there. He knows you. He loves you. You may be mad at him, but he doesn't get mad and throw fits at us. God loves you, and he has chosen you. Even in the midst of your sin, of your rebellion, of your attitudes, of your faults and your failures and your fears and your scars, and he says, I love you. Why would God choose you or me to be a part of his family? Well, the answer is not because of something I've done. It's because of who he is. Because he is a God of love. He is a God of grace. And no matter how hard life gets, you can rejoice that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. In other words, it's not based on your performance. It's not based on your moral perfection. You'll never be able to earn it. You don't deserve it. You couldn't work hard enough for it. It's just God's grace, God's mercy, that says, I want you. I want you in my family. I created you from the beginning of time. I know you. That blows my mind. That type of unconditional love, that, that, that belonging to something bigger than I even know. And he'll never stop loving you. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. God created you. You're not a mistake. You're no accident. You are created in God's image, and God created you for a good purpose, a purpose that he planned out long ago. You are his workmanship. The, the word in the Greek is poema. It means a careful work of art. That's how God sees you. Grace means that God did all the work to forgive you. He paid the price. He died on the cross. He adopted you into his family. And all that I can do and all that you can do is simply say yes to him. That's it. Yes, God. Yes, I acknowledge you are real. Yes, you love me. Yes, you came. Yes, you died on the cross. You were buried. You rose again. You, you, you ascended to heaven, and you will come back for me one day. Yes, I place my faith in that. You don't have to stay stuck in your sin because grace motivates you out of sin. Grace is not a license to keep on sinning. Grace motivates you out of it to say, I don't want any part of that any longer in my life. I'm living my life now to the purposes God has set before me. When grace is operating in your life, grace is the air you breathe. Grace calls you to live by faith. Grace picks you up when you fall down. When you receive God's unmerited favor, his grace, what happens is old things pass away and behold, all things become new. Let's pray. Would you bow your head with me, please? God, I thank you so much for your amazing grace in our life. God, we take it for granted. God, I pray that you would work in us this morning. Lord, that you're adopting, you're loving, you're reaching out yet again today to hearts, to lives, to souls. And yes, maybe you've heard this message of grace before. Maybe you've, you know about God, but do you know God? He's inviting you into a relationship with him. Will you say yes to him? I would just want to lead you in a prayer this morning, if that's you. You know that God is knocking on the door of your heart yet again. Don't spit in his face. Just let him love you and let him draw you. Let your pride go. Let your cynicism, let your intellectualism go. Let it all go and just open your heart. That eternal part of you that will live forever with God. Open that heart and say yes to him. I want to lead you in this prayer and invite you to pray it along with me. Jesus, I'm coming to you today. You're my creator. You're my God. And I'm putting my faith and my trust in you and what you did on the cross. Forgive me, God, for my transgressions and sin. All the ways, God, that I've gone my own way, done my own thing. Lord, I'm coming to you today and asking, forgive me, fill me, Holy Spirit. Adopt me into your family that I might live with you forever and ever and ever. Lord, I want that and I need that. I acknowledge that today. 
friend, if that was your prayer, God is at work right now. Just, it's just that simple. God is at work changing you, filling you, drawing you, loving you. Lord, for all of us, would you help us, God, develop just such a love for you and such an appreciation for your grace that we would literally hate sin and not want to be any part of it. That we would just so want you and want your purposes and want your calling in our life that that grace would motivate us towards the changes that you want to make in each one of us. Lord, let that be so. We pray today in Jesus' name. If that was you uh, that was praying that prayer along with Mike just a moment ago, and that represented maybe the first time that you've stepped across that line of faith and you've made your yes to Jesus be known, we want to celebrate that with you. That's a big deal, and it's important uh, and is worthy of some celebration. We'd love to know about it, and uh, then we could follow up and maybe help you take some important, really uh, very important next steps also. So would you let us know if that was you? You can uh, put that on the tear-off tab at the bottom of the bulletin and just drop it in one of the connection boxes on the back wall, and we'd love to follow up with you on that. Hey, looking forward into this coming week, we recognize this. You know, my, we talked about uh, change, and when we say yes to Jesus, the change begins, right? His love that, that we experience is something that transforms us and changes us, and then we become uh, vessels for that love moving out, right? I just want to prepare us that as we go into this week, there's going to be all kinds of opportunities for us to reflect God's love to the people in the world around us, and we just got to be ready, right, that some of them will just spit back in our face, maybe not ready to receive it, maybe not in a place where they're ready yet to accept that. And that's okay, because we can continue to reflect God's love and God's care when even in the face of rejection, we continue to love just the way that God does. We continue to love uh, just the way that Jesus did. And that makes a very, very powerful statement about the change that God's already at work in us. So God bless you. Have a great week. And do enough to get spit at, if you know what I mean. Have a great time.